Well, good morning. It's good to, good to be together. And I'm excited about this series that we're in because as we're coming towards the end of it, uh, actually next week is the final, the final message in this series, but this week feels kind of like the important one. Now, that doesn't mean you should stay home next week. Next week is, a, a, I think, a really exciting end to it. But what we're looking at today is a passage that really, it's hard to think of any passage that is more at the center of the Christian message, the message of the Bible, than this passage we're going to look at this morning, Isaiah 53. It's sort of like the Holy of Holies in the Bible. It's the place where you feel completely inadequate as a preacher to be able to to handle something so precious and so uh, wonderful in its content. Isaiah is this amazing document. We've been looking at it for a few weeks. We haven't looked at the whole thing. It's, it's huge, 66 chapters. And it covers a massive amount of scroll space. But within that, as Isaiah wrote this document seven centuries before uh, the birth of Jesus, he gives us all the way through almost innumerable previews of Jesus, what we're calling the Jesus trailers. And there are other books that do that as well. And there's certainly other uh, Old Testament books that point forward to Jesus, but no one does it as much as Isaiah. And the passage we're looking at this morning, in, in some ways or many ways, is, is the clearest, strongest, uh, is probably the most quoted section in the New Testament from Isaiah. Um, certainly up there with, with one other that comes to mind. And it, it's a passage that really is it's not difficult to see how it connects to Jesus. In fact, uh, while we've looked at some and, and maybe you've needed a little bit of convincing along the way, maybe sometimes you have to look at a, you know, another passage that says this uh, happened to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And you go, oh, right, that was a prophecy. This one's not like that. This one is absolutely crystal clearly talking about Jesus. So much so that interestingly, uh, for the first few hundred years after it was written, the Jewish rabbis saw it the same way that we do. That is to say that this passage talking about the servant of the Lord who is going to come and live and suffer and die is clearly the, the anointed, the Messiah. It's a, an individual who in some way is going to suffer for the sake of others. That's the way the Jews saw it. Until Jesus. Once Jesus came and it was so painfully obvious that it was talking about him. Because they hadn't accepted him as the Messiah, they, they kind of had a problem. And so for the past hundreds of years, in synagogues, you will not hear Isaiah 53 read. It's not in their annual reading schedule. You will not hear it read. You will find the scholars trying to sort of do gymnastics to explain this passage in a way that doesn't point to Jesus. It's that obvious, it's that clear that it's so awkward. In fact, I was reading an article this week about somebody who had interviewed a hundred Jews in Tel Aviv and approached them with one question, who is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53? And all 100 of these Jewish people basically gave the same answer. They said, well, that's really difficult. It's, it's an obscure passage. It's taken from an obscure corner of, of the Hebrew Bible. And it's difficult. Nobody can be really sure what it means. Uh, and so we, we don't know. That's amazing, isn't it? For a start, the idea that Isaiah 53 is from an obscure corner of the Old Testament. You read through the Old Testament once, I guarantee you will feel like when you get into Isaiah 40s and 50s, that, oh, this is special. 
This really seems to be special. This is not an obscure corner of the Old Testament. But I think the issue is not that it's difficult. It's that it's so painfully clear who it's talking about. Now, before we jump into it, I just want to establish two things kind of as background for us. I think these are really important. As we're thinking about this passage and we're going to look at it, inevitably we don't have time to go through it in meticulous detail. That would make, a, I think, a great series, maybe sometime in the future. But what we're going to do today is we're going to go through the whole of this section, which is actually 15 verses, and we're going to see what it says and, and we'll make sense of that. And hopefully, even being somewhat on the surface, God can challenge us and speak to us and stir our hearts as we see Isaiah's Jesus trailer. But before we do that, I just want to make sure there's two things we need to kind of have in our thinking, our understanding uh, as, as we get to it. This is sort of Old Testament Bible basic understanding about who we are, humans. Okay, what, what does the Bible teach us about us? Two things. Number one, the Bible, I think surprisingly to many people, has an incredibly high view of you as a human. Now we live in a culture that's a little bit backwards from the rest of the world for the rest of history. Most people have lived in cultures that basically say you're worthless. You're not worth anything, you're useless, you're just a kind of a cog in, in a mechanism, you're here for the benefit of others, but you have no real value. That's the way most humans have lived their lives in this world. We live in a culture that says, oh, you have so much potential. You've just got to look within and, and from within you will find everything you need to reach your potential. You're an amazing, amazing person and our culture feeds us that all the time. But actually, the Bible goes way above that. The Bible says, not just you have great potential or, or you have such wonderful uh, capacities as a human. And I'm, you, know, you could go to the psychological journals or you could watch the psychology of Britain's Got Talent. It's all the same, isn't it? Oh, look at this amazing story, rags to riches. The Bible says, actually, you are made, created wonderfully and perfectly by God in his image. That means that you are beautiful, you are wonderful, you are special. You in your, not just your physical uh, nature, but in, in your capacity to interact and relate and, and comprehend and understand and, and relate to others in all these multidimensional ways, you are made to reflect the image of God. That's, that's high. We're told that in the very first chapter of the Bible, that we're made in the image of God. That's the highest possible view of a human but then there's the second truth that we've got to have really grasped if we're going to make sense of Isaiah 53 and that is that as well as being made in the image of God you and I are fatally flawed at the very core of our being we're, we're deeply corrupted it's a, we would call it um, disadvantaged Right? We, we basically find some way to kind of make an excuse for not reaching our great potential. And we'd say, well, if I was born into that family or if I'd gone to that school or if I had that much money or if I had that kind of health or if, if I this or if I that or if I looked like her or if I could sing like him. You know, we, we come up with these reasons that basically say I am disadvantaged, but otherwise I'd be great. I'm, I'm a superhero. I just can't let it show because I'm disadvantaged. The Bible says, hmm, that's nice. You're a sinner. 
The Bible says we're sinners. We looked at, uh, in Life Group this week, Mark chapter 7, and, and Jesus was talking to these religious leaders and he said, listen, it's not what goes into you that defiles you and makes you dirty. It's what comes out from the inside. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we only have to pause for a few seconds to say, yeah, that's true. It's, it's from the inside that comes all the, the gross stuff. It's from the inside that we have these thoughts and these, these ideas and this kind of tendency that we can't seem to shake to treat ourselves as the center of the universe. To, to say, God, you're irrelevant, I'll be God, and I'm in charge. And, and for some of us, that manifests in horrible, gross things. And for others, it manifests in the, the gross thing of pride and arrogance. The Bible says that every one of us is a sinner. And it's not saying that you're, you're worthless or you're valueless because of it. Because you're made in the image of God. You have the highest of value. And yet the Bible's very realistic about the mess that goes, uh, comes from within humanity. And I think part of the problem that we have in a culture that says you're amazing, you're amazing, you're amazing. Is that we don't really pause to think about that. We don't dwell on the fact that we really are kind of gross on the inside that we really are far far short of what we should be and what we could be now some of us have kind of hit the wall enough to realize yeah i am a mess others of us maybe are still living in the dream world of being mr or miss wonderful but life has a tendency i think by god's design to wake us up to that in the Old Testament times, there was a, a system in place to wake people up to that. God wanted people to realize that, that sin is impossibly, unavoidably, should I say, connected to death. So again, right at the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God immediately took a perfect animal designed to live forever and killed it and clothed them in its skin. It wasn't some nice gift. It was a hideous grotesque act of violence for them to realize sin, death, sin, death. And as you go through the Old Testament, you read about the sacrifice, uh, sacrificial system, the, the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, and there was this system built into the people of, of God, the people of Israel, that, that every day, morning and evening, there were sacrifices going on. And we read about that and we put it in children's Bibles and the priests are always very nice and clean and white. And, and it all looks very nice, but the reality was gross. There was blood. And, and as you, you realize the sin in your life, you take a perfect lamb or a bird or, or some kind of animal and you take something that was so valuable, part of your livelihood, part of your flock. And you take it to a priest and you'd say, I, I've sinned and I know that sin leads to death. And you'd give over that very valuable asset. And the priest would kill the animal and divide it up. And there'd be blood and there'd be noise and the smell and the stench of that. And that was normal life for God's people. Because God wanted them to know sin, death. It's not that the animals could cover their sin forever. It's not that the animals were worth as much as the people. It was a kind of a temporary holding pattern that was supposed to make them look beyond and say, okay, I need something. I need some sort of sacrifice that's going to be better than a sheep. What is it going to be? And that's where Isaiah 53 comes in. Here's the answer 
the ultimate solution to our sin. Let me encourage you. It's not a good idea, I think, to to focus on ourselves and to kind of curve inwards. That's part of the problem. I do think it's a good idea to take some time with God and ask him to show you the reality of what you're like. Just this week, I had the chance to take a few hours and I I left my computer at home and I turned my phone onto silent and I I drove to a place where I knew I wouldn't be interrupted and I uh, read Bible and I read a book, a whole book on holiness, which was fantastic, really powerful time and just talked to God and I knew that I would need to write. It's just kind of the way I function. So I had some pieces of paper and I ended up filling one side of paper with sins that God brought to my mind. Just things from the past, things that I've done, things that I've said, mistakes that I've, uh, mistakes, sins that I've done. And I, I, I filled this piece of paper out and, and just talked it through with God and thanked him for his solution. <clears throat> Excuse me. Can you give me a drink, please? For, for God's solution to my sin. I want us to see this personally this morning. This is not a kind of a hypothetical, what's the solution to sin? That's interesting. No, what is the ultimate solution to your and my sin. Thanks so much, Hannah. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. Actually, we're going to start in 52. Thinking about what is the ultimate solution to my sin. My being you as well as me. 52 verse 13. That's where the heading is. And that's really, I think, where the chapter break should be. Remember, the numbers have been added later. So we don't need to be defensive of the numbers too much. But Isaiah 52, verse 13, behold my servant. Here's the start of the servant song, as it's called. This is God talking about his servant, who is his son, who's going to come and suffer. Let me give you an overview of it, and then we'll read it through. It it breaks up into five, let's call them stanzas, technical term. It's kind of like the verses in in a hymn, but... If I use the word verses, that gets confusing. So let's go with stanzas. There's five stanzas, okay, of three verses each. And and each one actually gets one line longer than the one before it. So it's got this kind of growing weightiness to it. It, it's, It's kind of getting heavier and heavier as you go through it. And what it gives us is an overview of the life and the death and ultimately the triumph of the servant. Here are the five elements. First of all, the servant is introduced. And then the servant is rejected. Then the servant suffers. Then the servant dies. And then finally we'll see the servant triumphs. So he's introduced. He's rejected. He suffers. He dies. He triumphs. Let's start with the first part of that then. The introduction of the servant. Let me read it. 13 uh, down to the end of of chapter 52. Excuse me. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle or startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Okay, so we've got kind of a a strange introduction here. On On the one hand, 
He's, he's a wise servant. He's high and lifted up and he's exalted. He's impressive. And the kings of the world are stunned by him. There's something about him that, that sort of startles them or affects them in some way. And, and, and you know, the most powerful people in the world, in light of this servant, are, are responding to him as if he's more important than them. But in the middle of that, you get those lines in verse uh, 14 that are really kind of awkward, aren't they? His, his uh, appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. There's something strangely fascinating about a marred human, isn't there? I remember as a child uh, watching the news while the Falklands War went on and uh, in the West Country, the, the local hero was Simon Weston who was burned beyond recognition uh, in the the fighting there in the Falklands. And I remember watching the news as a five, six-year-old and seeing the progress of Simon Weston. And then as he came on television and spoke of all that he'd been through, you kind of wanted to look away because of what it had done to him, but you couldn't help. But, but, But listen, but one thing you don't do as a human typically, is look at somebody marred and scarred beyond human likeness and elevate them and treat them as more significant and more wonderful than the kings. And yet that's what happens with this one. Isn't it a staggering thought that if you were to get a glimpse right now of the face of Jesus, you might be tempted to ask, is that human? In the previous servant song, in chapter 50, we didn't look at it, uh, but in chapter 50, we're told that his beard is ripped from his face. When we move on, uh, after the resurrection, you have the disciples kind of scratching their heads at times going, I think it's him, but is it? He went through that. On purpose, deliberately, as we'll see, for us. He goes on in 53, the first three verses, to talk about uh, his rejection. Who has believed what they heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is this image of God's power and strength coming to rescue, coming to put things right and to bring justice. Uh, And Isaiah contrasts that with this servant it says he grew up verse 2 before him like a young plant like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him no beauty that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not Jesus wasn't impressive. He wasn't educated in the right places. He didn't stand out from the crowd. There was nothing about him that made you look twice. He was incredibly ordinary to look at. Here was God in the flesh walking amongst us, fully God, fully man, and people had fully no clue as they looked at him. You'd expect him to be impressive, wouldn't you? You think about the Greek stories of gods becoming, uh, taking on human form and walking in our midst. They're always nine foot high and muscly. Jesus wasn't. People, all of us here, more impressive than Jesus was. He was ordinary. 
And he's so ordinary that people missed the point. In fact, they didn't just misunderstand. They rejected him. They, they despised him. They considered him just the opposite of someone to respond to. He came to his own, John tells us, and his own did not receive him. And then we come to verses 4 to 6. And, and after the introduction and the rejection, now we get to really the heart of the passage. I think the heart of the message of scripture right here. Because here we see his suffering. And I want you to notice who he suffers for. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that powerful? Here's... Isaiah, 700 years before, and it feels like he's giving a running commentary of Jesus' crucifixion, doesn't it? In fact, he gives us a theological running commentary. He explains what wasn't even clear at the time. Imagine, if you can, in your mind, Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. Pilate couldn't, couldn't see anything wrong with this man. He was perplexed by him. But under pressure, he condemned him to death. He, he was scourged. He was whipped. The, the wounds that lacerated his back were, were for a purpose. And he was sent out to die. And he carried that heavy piece of wood, the cross piece, so heavy and with the loss of blood. He couldn't manage it. And someone needed to help him carry it. But he was carrying something far heavier than a piece of wood. He was carrying our burdens. Our iniquities, our doubts, our failures, our moments of distrust, our moments of self-love, our moments of explosive anger. The times when we've thought things that we maybe, we, maybe we'd never do it, but we thought it. He carried all of that. The Lord took that from us and laid it on him. He was taken out to the place of execution and stretched out onto that piece of wood. And the nails were driven through the flesh. And he was lifted up, not very high, probably to eye level. With his legs twisted and bent off to the side and the, the nail through the flesh there. So that every single breath took excruciating, that's where the word comes from, excruciating agony to press himself up in order to take a breath. Crucifixion was the most hideous death. It, it, it's it kind of exposed you completely to the ultimate set of pain that, that the body could, in, in fact, the body can't endure it. It's impossible. And hanging there with the shock, just coursing through the entire nervous system for every single breath. And he did that for us. It was our sins, our iniquities, our guilt. It was what we've done and what we've not done. And the penalty that we should pay that was all placed on him. His suffering was on purpose and his suffering was for us. And if we want to know the answer, what is the ultimate solution to our sin, to your sin and my sin? The ultimate solution is never going to be that we fix ourselves. It's never going to be that we turn over a new leaf. It's only ever going to be biblically that we accept that he has done it for us. 
that he has paid the price, that he has taken the punishment and he has offered us the opportunity to go free. That's the heart of the message of the Bible. Jesus didn't come to be our guru. He didn't come to give us uh, an example. He came to be our substitute. To say, oi, you come off. You can't handle this. I can. Let me take your place. And he went to the cross and he suffered. And Isaiah describing that makes it so clear that it was our transgressions and our iniquities and, and our healing and our peace. And it was all ours that led him to do that for us. And then we come to verses 7 to 9 where we read about the death. And it says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away and for his generation, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. It it was voluntary. We can affect the way that we die. Obviously suicide can affect the the timing of our death. But even just the the way that we eat, the way that we live, the things that we do, that that affects our, our kind of way of death. But none of us can affect if we die. We die. That's... Normal. That's consistent. That's the way it is for humanity. Jesus was the only human in all of history who chose if he died. And of all humans that have lived, he didn't need to. There was no guilt in him. That He'd never done anything wrong. He didn't deserve the slightest punishment. And yet he chose to take the ultimate punishment. And he chose to do that for us. The, the truths about humanity are really important that we are on, on the one hand made in the image of God and yet at the same time incredibly fallen. And once we grasp that, then the Bible makes sense that God, not just in the image of God, but God himself steps down into our world in order to bring us back up into his. Just think about that for, for a moment. Jesus became one of us. We're coming up to Christmas. And at Christmas, we often say this, Jesus was not born in a palace with kings. He was born where the animals are fed, in a commoner's home. Jesus wasn't given wealth and riches and all the stuff that he deserved. Instead, he lived and grew up in Nazareth, nowhere, Galilee. A smelly town with bad morals. He became one of us. And all through his life, as we read about the life and the ministry of Jesus, we don't find him impressing us with his wealthy clothes and his wealthy advantage and his private school education. We see that he's really one of us with a question mark hanging over his parentage, with with nothing to really show off about. And yet all through the story, there are these moments where his value kind of peeks through. We think of his birth and the wise men coming and the smell of animals and the gold. And the frankincense and the myrrh. I don't think Joseph said to Mary when they were gone, don't worry dear, I'll put it with the rest of our gold. That didn't fit. That that was kind of a shock. It didn't make sense. 
Later on, as people came and, and poured perfume on his feet, he accepted it. But that wasn't normal. Normal for him was, was having nowhere to lay his head because he came to be like the lowest of us. But ultimately, after he died the death on the cross that we deserved, ultimately he was laid to rest in a rich man's tomb. Why, why is that? I'm just pondering that. After effectively rejecting or ignoring all the way through his life and ministry the, the kind of the benefits of wealth and position and privilege, treating that as something that he didn't need, didn't want, because he wanted to come to the lowest of us, the lowest of classes, he came to us. Then when he was dead, instead of being buried in an open grave with, with the bodies of other common criminals, he was laid in the tomb of a rich man. I'm just thinking about that. I've never thought about this before, really. But I wonder if it's because he had gone all the way. He had identified fully. He had done the job. And there was no further to go. There's nothing more to be done. He hung on the cross and he cried, it is finished. The debt is completely paid. And then they took his body and they laid it in a rich tomb. The kind of tomb that he deserved. He died on purpose. And he died for us. And so then we come to the concluding verses. And here we see the, the triumph, the victory of the whole thing. The end of the story is not bleak with Jesus lying in a tomb. It says, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's plan and, and intent. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's still a future for the servant. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You, you see, there's a tone change here, isn't there? Suddenly, he's looking at what he's done and he's saying, yes, this was worth it. He, he's seeing others unrighteous sinners like us being declared righteous because of what he's done. Uh, suddenly he's, he's got people, offspring that can be part of his family that he can rejoice with and rejoice over. In fact, if you let your eyes drop into the next chapter, uh, just a little sneak preview, a trailer of a trailer of a trailer. And chapter 54 begins, sing, respond to this, sing. Uh, and, and then verse Oh, I want to read the whole thing. But verse four, fear not, you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth. Oh, don't some of us wish we could do that. The reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. Why? Verse five, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. Look at the end of verse 8. With everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Here's the big picture. Jesus came, unimpressive, 
so unimpressive that, that he was rejected. And he suffered and ultimately he chose to die. And it was on purpose. It was to deal with your sin. It was to deal with my sin. And it was to enable us to enter into the privilege of relationship with a God who is a loving God. A God who is uh, glorious in his love. Caring and loving and giving and compassionate. And he says, you know what? You are absolutely, desperately, hopelessly lost and in trouble. But I'll take care of it. And my mind goes forward to the time when those of us who've trusted and said, okay, God, I give up trying to fix myself. I give up trying to be good enough. I, I'm getting rid of all these ideas of scales and you know, trying to outweigh the, the bad with the good. I'm giving all that up and I'm trusting in the death of your son because you need to forgive me because I, that, that's the only way. For those of us that trust him and join his family, one day we're going to see him. I don't know how long it's going to take, but at some point in eternity, as we're looking on the face of Jesus and seeing those scars, which will be the most beautiful scars because of all that they speak of, I wonder if one day every one of us might have the privilege of a conversation with him where we say, I'm sorry about the scars. I'm sorry about my life. And I know you did that for me. And I'm, I'm really sorry, Lord. You know what he's going to say? He's going to say, you're worth it. I love you. Maybe we'll get a conversation with the Father by the Spirit somehow, however that works. And and maybe at some point we'll say, Father, we're so privileged to be here in heaven and to be worshiping your son. You're right. He's delightful. But I'm sorry about the scars. I'm sorry that, that that was my fault. And you know what the Father would say? He'd say, it was my will. It was my desire to do that because you're worth it. Because I love you. Isn't that astonishing? That's why we think that all people need to come to know the glorious love of the Trinity. The glorious love that has never been made more clear than when Jesus was stripped and beaten and hung naked and humiliated on the cross. Because that's the glory of God. Because that's the invitation, because that's the proof that God takes your value very seriously and God takes your sin very seriously. So he's stepped into our world. He's come right to where we are. He's even died the death that we deserve so that we can be brought into his family, so that we can be forever with the Lord. We're going to take a a couple of minutes just of quiet before we we have a time of communion and and I, I want this to be a time where we can just reflect even just for a moment and maybe maybe it would be worth asking God just very simply by his spirit to give us a clear glimpse of our own sinfulness and a clear glimpse of the cross because that's the solution the only solution is the cross Jesus dying for us in our place let's pray Father, I I pray very simply that by your spirit, you would be at work in each of our hearts right now. Would you shine a light on the the sinfulness, the cobwebs, the mess that that is our life, our attitudes, our motives, things we've done, things we're ashamed of, things we should have done, those deep regrets, the, 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 the ways in which we maybe still feel defiled. 
Lord, would you give us just a glimpse of how desperately needy we are? And then, Lord, by your spirit, please, would you give us a a glimpse of the cross? As we think about Jesus dying there for us, for our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions, for the sake of our healing and our righteousness. Lord, we just look to you and we want to be stirred to worship this morning. So show us our sin, even more show us our saviour. And would you do a work in our hearts during the rest of this service and in the coming days. We just need to know you more. We need these truths to sink home more. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.